Hi, and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. Um, first of all, sorry it's been such a long time. We've had building work going on, uh, loads of stuff. Anyway, too long and too boring to recount here, so we won't. Uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing our reading of Bruce Brown's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 17. Chapter 17 Wolver Game The Douve Corduroy Boards Back at Our Farm we got out of the frying pan into the fire when we went to Wolvergem, a much more exciting and precarious locality than Plug Street. During all my war experiences, I have grown to regard Plug Street as the unit of tranquillity. I have never had the fortune to return there since those times mentioned in previous chapters. When you leave Plug Street, you take away a pleasing memory of slime and reasonable shelling, which is more than you can say for the other places. If you went to Plug Street after, say, the Ypres salient, it would be more or less like going to a convalescent home after a painful operation. But however that may be, we were now booked for Wolvergame, or rather the trenches which lie along the base of the Messine Ridge, about a mile in front of that shattered hamlet. Two days after our tour of inspection, we started off to take over. The nuisance about these trenches was that the point where one had to unload and proceed across country, manhandling everything, was abnormally far away from the firing line. We had about a mile and a half to do after we had marched collectively as a battalion, so that my machine gunners were obliged to carry the guns and all the tackle we needed all that distance to their trenches. This of course happened every time we came in. The land where these trenches lay was a vast, lugubrious expanse of mud, with here and there a charred and ragged building. On our right lay the River Douve, and on our left the trenches turned a corner back inwards again. In front lay the long line of the Messine Ridge. The Bosch had occupied this ridge, and our trenches ran along the valley at its foot. This view, which the Bosch got by being perched on this hill, rendered them exactly what their soul delights in, i.e. uberalis. They can see for miles. However, those little disadvantages have not prevented us from efficiently maintaining our trenches at the far end of the plain, in spite of the difficulty of carrying material across this flat expanse. I forget what night of the week we went in and took over those trenches, but anyhow, it was a precious long one. I had only seen the place once before, and in the darkness of the night had a long and arduous job finding the way to the various positions allotted for my guns, burdened as I was with all my sections and impedimenta. I imagine I walked about five or six miles that night. We held a front of about a mile, and therefore not only did I have to do the above-mentioned mile and a half, but also three and a half miles going from end to end of our line. It was as dark as could be, and the unfamiliar ground seemed to be pitted like Gruyere cheese with shell holes. 
Unlimbering back near a farm, we sloshed off across the mud flat towards the section of trench which we had been ordered to occupy. I trusted to instinct to strike the right angles for coming out at the trenches, which henceforth were to be ours. In those days my machine guns were the old type of Maxim, a very weighty concern. To carry these guns and all the necessary ammunition across this desert was a long and very exhausting process. Occasional bursts of machine gun fire and spent bullets zipping into the mud all around hardly tended to cheer the proceedings. The path along to the right-hand set of trenches, where I knew a couple of guns must go, was lavishly strewn with dead cows and pigs. When we paused for a rest, we always seemed to do so alongside some such object, and consequently there was no hesitation in moving on again. None of us had the slightest idea as to the nature of the country on which we were now operating. I myself had only seen it by night, and nobody else had been there at all. The commencement of the journey from the farm of disembarkation lay along what is known as corduroy boards. These are short, rough wooden planks nailed crossways on long balks of timber. This kind of path is a very popular one at the front, and has proved an immense aid in saving the British Army from being swallowed up in the mud. The corduroy path ran out about 400 yards across the grassless sodden field. We then came suddenly to the beginning of a road. A small cottage stood on the right, and in front of it a dead cow. Here we unfortunately paused, but almost immediately moved on. Gas masks weren't introduced until much later. From this point, the road ran in a long straight line towards Messines. At intervals, on the right-hand side only, stood one or two farms, or rather, their skeletons. As we went along in the darkness, these farms silhouetted their dreary remains against the faint light in the sky, and looked like vast decayed wrecks of antique Spanish galleons upside down. On past these farms, the road was suddenly cut across by a deep and ugly gash, a reserve trench so now we were getting nearer to our destination. A particularly large and evil-smelling farm stood on the right. The reserve trench ran into its backyard and disappeared amongst the ruins. From the observations I had made when inspecting these trenches, I knew that the extreme right of our position was a bit to the right of this farm, so I and my performing troop decided to go through the farmyard and out diagonally across the field in front. We did this and at last could dimly discern the lines of the trenches in front. We were now on the extreme right of the section we had to control, close to the River Douve, and away to the left ran the whole line of our trenches. Along the whole length of this line, the business of taking over from the old battalion was being enacted. That old battalion made a good bargain when they handed over that lot of slots to us. The trenches lay in a sort of echelon formation, the one on the extreme right being the most advanced. This one we made for, and as we squelched across the mud to it, a couple of German star shells fizzed up into the air and illuminated the whole scene. By their light I could see the whole position, but could only form an approximate idea of how our lines ran, as our parapets and trenches merged into the mud so effectively as to look like a vast, tangled, disorderly mass of sandbags, slime and shell holes. We reached the right-hand trench. It was a curious sort of trench too, quite a different pattern to those that we had occupied at saint yvon 
The first thing that struck me about these trenches was the quantity of sandbags there were and the geometrical exactness of the attempts at traverses, fire steps, bays, etc. Altogether, theoretically, much superior trenches, although very cramped and narrow. I waited for another star shell in order to see the view out in front. One hadn't long to wait around there for star shells. One very soon sailed up, nice and white, into the inky sky, and I saw how we were placed in regard to the Germans, the hill and Messine. We were quite near a little stream, a tributary of the Douve. In fact, it ran along the front of our trenches. Immediately, on the other side, the ground rose in a gradual slope up the Messine hill, and about three quarters way up this slope were the German trenches. When I had settled the affairs of the machine guns in the right-hand trench, I went along the line and fixed up the various machine gun teams in the different trenches as I came to them. The ground above the trenches was so eaten away by the filling of sandbags and the cavities caused by shell fire that I found it far quicker and simpler to walk along in the trenches themselves, squeezing past the men standing about and around the thick traverses. Our total frontal length must have been three quarters of a mile, I should think. This, our first night in, was a pretty busy one. Dugouts had to be found to accommodate everyone. Platoons arranged in all the sections of trench, all the 101 details which go to making trench life as secure and comfortable as is possible under the circumstances had to be seen to and arranged. I had fixed up all the sections by about 10 o'clock and then started along the lines again, trying to get as clear an idea as possible of the entire situation of the trenches, the type of land in front of each, the means of access to each trench and possible improvements in the various gun positions. All this had to be done to the accompaniment of a pretty lively mixture of bullets and star shells. Sniping was pretty severe that night, and indeed, all the time we were in those douve trenches, there was an almost perpetual succession of rifle shots intermingled with the rapid crackling of machine gun fire. However, you soon learn out there that you can just as easily get one on the calmest night by an accidental spent bullet as you can when a little hate is on, and the bullets are coming thick and fast. The first night we came to the Douve was a pretty calm one, comparatively speaking. Yet one poor chap in the leading platoon, going through the farm courtyard I mentioned, got shot right through the forehead. No doubt whatever, it was an accidental bullet and not an aimed shot, as the Germans could not possibly have seen the farm owing to the darkness of the night. Just as I was finishing my tour of inspection, I came across the colonel, who was going round everything and thoroughly reconnoitring the position. He asked me to show him the gun positions. I went with him right along the line. We stood about on parapets and walked all over the place, stopping motionless now and again as a star shell went up, and moving on again just in time to hear a bullet or two whiz past behind and go smack into a tree in the hedge behind, or plop into the mud parados. When the colonel had finished his tour of inspection, he asked me to walk back with him to his headquarters. "'Where are you living, Bairns father?' said the colonel to me. "'I don't know, sir,' I replied. "'I thought of fixing up that farm,' I indicated the most aromatised one by the reserve trench, "'and making some sort of dugout if there isn't a cellar. "'It's a fairly central position for all the trenches.' The colonel thought for a moment. You'd better come along back to the farm on the road for tonight anyway, and you can spend tomorrow decorating the walls with a few sketches, he said. This was a decidedly better suggestion, 
A reprieve, in fact, as prior to this remark, my bedroom for the night looked like being a borrowed ground sheet slung over some charred rafters which were leaning against a wall in the yard. I followed along behind the colonel down the road, down the corduroy boards and out at the old moated farm not far from Wolvergem. Thank goodness, I should get a floor to sleep on. A roof too, straw on the floor. How splendid! It was quite delightful turning into that farm courtyard and entering the building. Dark, dismal and deserted as it was, it afforded an immense glowing feeling of comfort after the mysterious dark and wintry plain with its long lines of grey trenches soaking up there under the inky sky. Instead I found an empty room with some straw on the floor. There was only one shell hole in it, but some previous tenant had stopped it up with a bit of sacking. My word, I was tired. I rolled myself around with straw and still retaining all my clothes, greatcoat, balaclava, muffler, trench boots, I went to sleep. That brings us to the end of chapter 17. Hope you've enjoyed that episode of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets from 1914 to 1918 War.com. In our next episode, we'll be cracking on with chapter 18.